what I want to show you guys today are, are two or three little points that can hopefully scare you into doing things the right way. More so than anything, it'll probably highlight what you can do to really mitigate metabolic adaptation as we diet and just kind of see what are the best methods for this. The biggest factor in metabolic output is that when you are in a calorie restricted state, you just sit on your ass more often. You don't take that extra trip outside. You don't stand up to, to you know, go get a drink of water in the kitchen. You just stay on the couch. If you want to completely eliminate, at least this study showed, any impact of true biochemical metabolic adaptation, just train, just don't stop moving. So again, welcome. Appreciate you guys being here. Every week that we can plan these reviews, because there's always a week or two a month where I can't with travel and conflicts, um, it, it's, I, I'm trying to create a long-term narrative. I, I view us as a group doing science together, investigating some things together. And so as one tiny, tiny fractional little arm in the field of nutrition science, we've already covered in the last 18 months, I think around 40, maybe closing on 50 research reviews like this, where I'm either going specifically into a study or looking at a meta-analysis over an entire topic. And it's, it's admittedly just a survey. I'm not going to juxtapose one study against <clears throat> every other opinion or researched caveat out there. But there are some things that really stand alone as, as a good principle to learn, something that's uh, proven in an evidential way, concretely enough for me to want to bring it to your attention. And, and as we've done this, you, you start to see what any researcher or scientist sees, which is some similarities, some overlap. We're, we're always in the field of nutrition science, broadening out to some of the behavioral aspects of nutrition and body composition change. And you'll see some of the same citations sometimes when uh, a researcher or group of researchers concludes a study, <clears throat> they will typically have a self-described section of limitations. Here's what we found. Here's what we think this means. Here were the limitations. In other words, with what we now discovered here, it would be great if research was done in this area or that area and other scientists pick up that mantle. You know, if, if their research becomes cited heavily, then people know that's going to become part of the discussion. And it just kind of evolves and rolls down the hill. So you can sometimes see a chronology. And if you are a scientist or researcher in one exact field of study, you know that history. That is your canon. That is your Bible that you base decision-making on. And you still understand that it's, it's still in flow. There are very few things that are really settled. Some ideas or topics become more proven and therefore a little bit more foundational. But science moves at a very, very, very slow pace. And even something that you think that's groundbreaking, you see when you dig deeper, oh, that makes sense. It fits in here. So you start stacking up chips on one side of the table with different opposing theories and so forth. And metabolic adaptation has, be, has gotten a lot of attention lately. There was an influencer a decade or so ago who scared everybody by talking about, quote, metabolic damage, which is not a thing, um, but just with a very loose, impulsive approach and having a lot of followers, he made a lot of people think, wow, if I diet the wrong way, I will literally damage my metabolism. It's broken. And therefore I can never lose body fat the same again. Well, that got a lot of people, including me saying, okay, timeout dipshit. That's not how this works. Let's really, let's really describe what it is. And that did, you know, as almost kind of a mistake, make people look deeper at the true boundaries of metabolic adaptation in clinical metabolic suppression. And so there, it, it's really uncovered some nice things. And what I wanna show you guys today are, are two or three little points that can hopefully 
scare you into doing things the right way. More so than anything, it'll probably highlight what you can do to really mitigate metabolic adaptation as we diet, and especially those of us who have dieted repetitively for physique sport, um, and just kind of see what are the best methods for this. So this one particular study, uh, I, I'm sure it has to have been talked about in, in a few places in our industry because I see a lot of the same language, but metabolic and behavioral compensations in response to caloric restriction implications for the maintenance of weight loss. Uh, 2009, so it's been around for a while, uh, but not that long. That's not a, a long time in research. Um, I always have to move this little banner down one second. So daily energy expenditure has three major components, resting metabolic rate, the thermic effect of food, which of course is the digestive nature of what we eat, and then the energy cost of physical activity. Respiratory chambers enable the measurement of sleeping metabolic rate, the energy cost of arousal, thermic effect of food, and the energy cost of spontaneous physical activity. However, and this is at the time of this study, the confined space within a respiratory chamber, blah, 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 and they go into saying, we're doing this because we have never studied this in the wild. They, they thought having people live their own lives, here are the constraints of the study, but instead of doing these really closed, tight, uh, inpatient metabolic ward type studies, we want to just let people loose and see what happens. And I've talked to you guys about the pros and cons of both of those, because sometimes if you're really looking at an epidemiological study, we're going to do this and we want to see what happens very clinical, that's when it's helpful to be in an inpatient situation where people can only eat the food they're given them because we know how much self-reported studies have error in them. When you give people the, or if you just tell people, this is your diet, go home and eat this. Massive, massive, massive room for self-reporting error. I wouldn't call it fraud, but people intentionally not being honest because they're being paid to do these studies and they want to look like good little boys and girls and do what they're supposed to do. But sometimes you really actually do want to set people out into their own environment because that's where people live anyway. People who consume this research, people who are going to uh, you know, coach people in these environments, you have to know what really happens in real life. So that was their premise in, in doing this. And their method, they, they interviewed, I think it was almost a thousand, maybe 600 or so people. And one of the things I liked about this study, as I do so many, they were really, really, really tight on how they, they peeled people down and how they would not let certain people in. They would disqualify them. And so they only ended up with 48 people because they wanted uh, relatively healthy. You know, the BMI at 27.8 as an average isn't, you know, horrible. Uh, they ended up with 27 female, 21 men at just under 37 years old. And they put them in four groups. They had the control group, which would be after testing their metabolic rates, you know, you're going to eat exactly what you, you use. And during these, this ended up being a six month intervention and they did blood work at three months and six months. Um, you know, they, there were some periods where they would retest that to make sure everything was okay and, and everything was happening as it should. Then there was a calorie restriction group which is 25% restriction of their, their food intake. Here's their basal metabolic rate or their, their total energy expenditure, 25%. That's the diet. Then they had a calorie restriction plus exercise. So this group had 12.5% of their overall deficit through calorie reduction, and then 12.5% through exercise induction. And then there's a very low calorie group, which was medically, you know, there are different ranges, but this one, they chose 890 calories. And until they reached 15% of total body weight lost, which is a pretty good amount. Um, you know, that would be for me right now, about 27 pounds. So for me, I would go on this very low calorie diet. And as soon as I hit 27 pounds lost, they would bring me back up to body weight, or I should say, you know, maintenance levels. So that was one of the tests they wanted to show one of the groups. Um, one of the, the things I liked here is that they had 
um, all meals provided. So it was still self-reported because they wanted it to be quote in the wild, but all the meals were provided. So ostensibly these people getting free food, like, you know, and being paid to do a study. I think that increases the probability of, of better self-reporting. And for the, the exercise group, three of the five sessions had to be supervised. So that meant that they knew they were at least getting three good exercise sessions in. And then, like I said, they were doing a post-intervention, um, you know, everything was done with, with two, two or three different methods of metabolic rate testing, but then also with DEXA scans for lean body mass and body composition. So I'm going to go through a couple graphs that we did first, or they did before I, I kind of broke some things down for some analysis. So when you look at this, just the body composition changes. So we're looking at the weight change on the left and then the, the time on the right. So you'll see M3 and M6, month three, month six. Uh, the control group, they actually did a really good job. I mean, you can see that in the, in the whole course of this, they only lost about one kilogram. So lost about two pounds. So truly close to energy neutral. Um, the calorie restriction plus exercise, Let, let's look at the calorie restriction plus exercise plus the calorie restriction, just those next two little columns there. So you will see that the actual fat mass lost is pretty similar, which I think also is a complement to the fact that they really wanted both of these groups to be at a true 25% deficit. The exercise group, 12 and a half from nutrition reduction and 12 and a half percent from exercise. Um, but you also see that, you know, fat-free mass, a little bit more retention, lean body mass retention in the exercise group. So this is one big thing, just a kind of one stone to take out of this for right now and make sure you put it on your desk to say, this is something I'm going to remember to compare later on in this study. So losing about the same amount of body fat, the exercise group retained a little bit more muscle. And so let's see what happened because we're ultimately investigating, remember, uh, metabolic adaptation. So body fat loss and lean body mass retention is one thing, but what's really happening to the metabolism as we go through this. So then you see that the, the low calorie diets, uh, you know, obviously a little bit faster fat loss, but also more lean body mass loss. And then it's just a little bit of a statistical uh, anomaly. They, they wanted to combine the stats between just the calorie deficit and the very low calorie deficits just to, to juxtapose against the group that did some exercise. So when you do kind of a layover analysis of that, uh, you, you see... Uh, you know, that, that combined the calorie restriction plus the very low calorie restriction, you know, that that's definitely going to be a little bit more total loss, but more lean body mass loss. So um, this, I, I wanted to put this here just to be kind of complete, but I know it's hard to see. So I, I pulled some of this out in a chart coming up. So I'll show you this here in a minute, a little bit easier to see, but now I'm going to, we're going to look at the change in uh, total daily energy expenditure. So now what's really happening to the metabolism? You see the control group at month three and month six. Uh, again, very little change right out of the gate, just because they were, this is what's kind of funny, just because they were conscious that like I'm in a weight loss study. Your job is to not lose weight. You're the control group, but I'm in a weight loss study. And so they ended up losing, you know, a, a couple pounds and even just that initial loss created a, a tiny little, um, I don't want to call it fractional because it's almost the opposite as you'll see in a bit. The first steps in a calorie deficit tend to be the highest in causing your metabolism to decline. That's counterintuitive to a lot of people, including me. Uh, we always think, and, and I've even taught this for years, that when somebody just starts a diet, your metabolism is as high as it's going to be, correct? You've been in off-season eating or maintenance eating, so your metabolism's supercharged, fortified, it's, it's, it's as good as it's going to get. 
So then if we go into that initial calorie deficit, your body is resilient. Your metabolism is fantastic. There's like, that's, that's a, a good place to be. You're going to make some great progress, but that initial drop in total energy expenditure in metabolic actual rate really dips down your body. I don't want to say freaks out, but your body has a, a pretty strong reaction. So, so even going across the board, let's skip over to the middle column, calorie restriction, the total daily energy expenditure change. So that's a negative. We're going from the midline of zero to it dropping uh, around 300 calories a day. That's after that's in the first three months of dieting. When they hit the six month mark, their metabolism had actually rebounded. So eating the same amount of food, but now they're leaner and lighter. They've been in a calorie deficit for three plus months, three to six months. And all of a sudden their metabolism actually starts to rebound a bit. And you see that consistently across the board. So again, the low calorie diet, uh, their, their metabolism dropped further. So the, 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 I should say, yeah, the, the low calorie diet. And then of course, again, that combined um, statistical look at the far right, but look what happened to the control or I'm sorry, the control group, the, the, the calorie restriction group plus exercise. What happens when you add training and these were five days a week, three supervised minimum. So we're, we're going to assume that they were at least aggressive enough from their baseline activity levels for these people, their metabolic rates, total daily energy expenditure, even after six months of dieting, were actually up a little bit. So here's, here's where this, this may not be the most impactful information on the surface to those of you who are already aggressively training, because you hit a diet and you're probably already doing solid training. I, I would say very, very advanced training for most of us. So you're already in that group that is very, very safe. But then you have to look at, you know, what, what if that group did the exercise, but they were in the lower calorie or a very low calorie diet, obviously, then you would probably still get some, some energy expenditure reduction, but maybe not quite as much. So another rock, another chunk of information to, to set on the table is that just training, at least in a 25% calorie deficit, which is not small, but it's also not super aggressive, you know, that really does fortify your metabolism over time. So let's, let's compare some of these stats now with a little bit easier to see view. So after six months, calorie restriction yielded about a 10.4% reduction uh, in, in body weight. So these are percent, these aren't pounds or kilograms. So they lost about 10% of their body weight. So for me, again, that would be, you know, almost 20 pounds or so. Uh, not, not super aggressive, you know, 20 ish pounds in 20 to 24 weeks. That's just a pretty moderate and probably very appropriate diet. The calorie restriction plus exercise about the same, but remember they lost less lean body mass and they did not sacrifice hundreds of calories a day in lost metabolic capacity. The very low calorie, I should say, I shouldn't say very low calorie. That's, that's literally 500 calories or so. So this, a low calorie diet around 900, you know, they dropped about 14% of their, their body weight, but again, higher percentage, that would be lean body mass control group. Again, just lost a couple pounds. So now let's look at the actual numerical value of, of what happened to their metabolic rates, their total daily energy expenditure, uh, expenditure calorie restriction. Uh, right out of the gate, uh, an initial drop of almost 400 calories a day. And then that kind of drifted back up to a more homeostatic 200 or so. Uh, calorie reduction plus exercise, you know, minus two, you know, basically the same. And then it actually kind of settled in a little bit. So a little bit opposite there in that the exercise really did create some resilience and then gradually your body just kind of succumbs to the fact that exercise is a catabolic activity by nature. And so 
it, and we we really can't tell. Again, I mean, th these are not advanced training people. Uh, they're, they're, these are not advanced programming techniques or tools. They're they're very basic for a general population. But what if somebody was really smart about their frequency and their duration of training and so forth and load? Uh, first of all, it is remarkable that when an average diet is, you know, at, at the end result, you, you add up how many calories per day this is over six months instead of just an average of, you know, if, if you compare 209 calories a day to 129, eh, doesn't look like a massive difference, but extrapolate that out over six months and see how much uh, a 40 or so percent decrease in efficiency what that really does. I mean, th these people truly could be burning almost twice as many calories a day just with their overall total energy expenditure simply because they're exercising at least at a semi-rigorous pace. Then, of course, the low-calorie diets, uh, you know, losing a lot more metabolic steam there. Uh, the control, look, look how the, the control kind of, uh, again, just just homeostatically corrected for itself. We, we talk a lot about adaptation and the fact that all of these triggers in our bodies are there for survival. So when you start eating less, your body starts adjusting for that. And, and that becomes one of the key points. One, one of the most important things I'm going to pull out of this is that they found what they were looking for, which is sometimes dangerous in science because that could imply or reveal some bias. Um, but, but I'll show you why it's a little bit different in this perspective. We next adjusted. This is, this is one of the things they thought, okay, this is our, our biggest aha moment, the effect of calorie restriction on activity. So this is where we get a little bit of a plot twist. Up to this point, we're just really looking at what's happening to the metabolism, what's happening to body fat loss. But listen to this. We next adjusted total daily energy expenditure for sedentary energy expenditure. So we're looking at NEAT, non-exercise activity thermogenesis. Um, measured in a respiratory chamber uh, for that sedentary, uh, you know, MR. Uh, this adjustment allows us to disentangle the effect of the physical activity from the effect of sedentary metabolism in response to calorie restriction. So with both the calorie restriction and low calorie diet combined, uh, total daily energy expenditure adjusted for the sedentary metabolic response and expressed as residuals, blah, 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 blah. Uh, was significantly decreased at month three and six. No changes from baseline were observed in the, in the calorie restricted plus exercise or control. This indicates a metabolic adaptation. This is the important part. This indicates a metabolic adaptation unrelated to the sedentary energy expenditure and therefore resulting from decreased habitual or voluntary physical activity. This is what I've seen a lot of my peers talk about in recent years. So I think that means this study is being well cited and passed along, or at least in future iterations of studies, this has been reaffirmed. But what they're saying is in the actual exercise induced and non-exercise induced movement, it's not that cellularly we just start losing the cellular metabolic capacity. It's that we just stop moving. So again, this study being in the wild, not an inpatient study, they said the biggest factor in metabolic output is that when you are in a calorie restricted state, you just sit on your ass more often. You don't take that extra trip outside. You don't stand up to, to, you know, go get a drink of water in the kitchen. You just stay on the couch. We voluntarily move less. And, and again, this, this we, we have talked in our Friday research re reviews about this. We've looked at this from a couple different angles. Uh, we looked at a, a theoretical math model study done on metabolism. We've studied the effect of the endocrine system, all the different hormones on metabolism we saw a retro analysis of the Minneapolis starvation study. And all of those are spokes in the wheel that have pointed to the fact that the biggest hindrance in weight loss is every time we drop our calories, we behaviorally modify by just moving less. And so we keep eating less and eating less and eating less, thinking that that's going to help us. And then in turn, we just keep moving less and moving less and moving less. 
And so this is yet another indictment of the fact that if you just keep moving, and sometimes that means you have to push yourself even harder, sometimes you may need supervision. Um, you know, I, those of you who have me or somebody else as your coach and, and somebody says, hey, do this much cardio, do this many minutes, do this style, try and hit this much of an effort level, you know, maybe it's time to go to an orange theory class a couple times a week. Maybe it's time to go to a functional fitness class where somebody like where you literally have to push yourself harder and harder than just making yourself get up at four in the morning, get on a treadmill. But, but that's what, what they really wanted to see is, is this a very cellular metabolic systemic issue in the body, a phenomena? Uh, as people like even me have often said that the body just gets more efficient and we're lighter, we use less calories, which is all very true. But they're saying that when you compare it to the control group and you compare it to the exercise group and you statistically account for that, it really comes down to the fact that it's absolutely more just total pure movement loss when we, when we diet. So what I what I wanted to, to just pull out some of the more meaningful things to me that, that really taught me something, or at least confirmed something was that that abrupt drop in the initial calorie deficit induction is as a little bit more than I think a lot of people tend to give credit for. I mean, again, I always thought that we just kind of grind down into metabolic adaptation over time and we have this drop and then it actually starts to come back. And that rationale that they think they accounted for does come back to pure survival because we know if we eat less, and they talk a lot about this in the study, they did a really good job. And some, some of the things, like I said, I didn't pull out because uh, I didn't want to get too deep into this, is that when you eat fewer calories, you have fewer free radicals in your body. You're oxidizing you know, energy less. And so that's why it increases longevity. We know, we know through other studies, human studies, mice studies, that almost exactly correlationally, the, the lower you drop your food intake, the longer you extend your life, your longevity increases. And you, but you don't just necessarily suppress your metabolism into the dirt and have to suffer with that chronically suppressed metabolism. As you can see, that initial drop where your body's like, oh shit, what's going on? We don't have enough food. Let's account for that by dropping overall energy output. On its own, it comes back in every single study group, even the control group, it, it stabilizes out for uh, almost a, a, a hardwired genetic predisposition for survival, which of course we would want. Um, and so, so that my question is this, and that's why I have these arrows going both directions. You could actually argue, even in the study, a chicken and egg phenomena, which is causing which. So is it that we are reducing total body mass, and therefore that decreases our calorie needs, and then we start moving a little bit less because of that, and it creates this, this cycle of, of just surviving that lower metabolic, lower food intake environment? Or, or is it kind of the opposite where your body is truly programmed for that and it's calling the shots and it's forcing your hand behaviorally? But what, what really cued them in on this is they had some statistical modeling that shows, okay, if this were perfectly linear biochemically, if this were something that, okay, we're going to drop calories by 25% or 50% or we're going to do it through exercise in this. We know that through our epidemiological information, here's what should happen. But they found that the total energy expenditure drop with calorie restriction is 6% lower than expected if, if it was from lean body mass reduction alone. So if you account for that lean body mass reduction, you would say, okay, this is metabolically active tissue as we know. We know we're going to lose a little bit of lean body mass, and therefore, here's why the metabolism goes down. But they said there is this almost perfectly correlational 6% extra we can't account for. And that's when they started bringing people back. I think I may have this in another slide um, where they did extra testing and they showed, no, these people are just not moving. Like they just stopped doing all the things they normally do. And 
you know, do you guys remember that 6% coming from somewhere else? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to test you. You don't have to come online here, but I'll, I'll tell you. Uh, if you remember that study we went over with with 30 some women, they were all over 50 postmenopausal women, and they wanted to do this this study where they went from 40 or so BMI to 25. And each one of the subjects, they just had to finish. They just had to cross that 25 BMI line. So th they all finished between three and five months. The average person lost about 40 pounds and they were measuring metabolic response. And what they showed was in the first 10 days of dieting, their thyroid output dropped by 6%, never deviated, stayed at 6%. And even after six, three to five months of dieting and losing 40 pounds, as soon as they were reintroduced to maintenance level calories, after 10 days, that 6% was erased and their thyroid, thyroid output was right back to where it was. So even that was a consideration of this chicken or egg concept. Is it that you immediately have this drop or do people stop moving? And so the thyroid doesn't need to be as active because we're not going through as fast of glucose disposal in the bloodstream. So again, I, yeah, I don't have the answer to that. Neither does this study could be a little of both, but it was an interesting overlay just to see those things. Uh, but here, here's a quote from them as in, in their own discussion. If you compare the calorie restriction and low calorie diet to the calorie restriction plus exercise, quote, we observed a true metabolic adaptation at three and six months, adjusting for sedentary energy expenditure, total daily energy expenditure was significantly less than predicted. Interestingly, no metabolic adaptation was observed in the calorie restriction plus exercise. So bottom line, and this was one of my points to this post when I, when I posted on social media today that this is what we'll be discussing. Um, if you want to completely eliminate, at least this study showed, any impact of true biochemical metabolic adaptation, just train, just don't stop moving. Even in that non-exercise activity, make sure you keep it up. Make sure you don't uh, settle into the habits of, you know, quote, quote resting. Well, of course, I want you to recover, but, you know, sitting down if you normally stand, not taking that walk if you normally take that walk. Oh, I'm dieting. I'm in a calorie deficit. I'm just going to sit here and rest for a little bit. I mean, all of that is fine if you need it. But if you're trying to stave off functional metabolic adaptation, then this study proved that all you have to do is keep your normal daily energy uh, expenditure up your actual activity, and then your metabolism will, will stay there with you. So last thing, this is, this is a slide I, I said that I think I had mentioned, uh, in this study, we combined two state-of-the-art methods, indirect calorimetry and double labeled water for quantifying precisely the complete energy expenditure response to caloric restriction in non-obese individuals. We identified reduction in sedentary energy expenditure that was 6% larger than could be accounted for by the loss in metabolic size i.e. metabolic adaptation. This report further proves, provides evidence from a metabolic adaptation in response to calorie restriction can be found in the free living situation as well. This adaptation comprises not only a reduction in cellular respiration, energy cost of maintaining cells, organs, and tissues, but also a decrease in free living activity thermogenesis. These observations are of importance to understand that progressive resistance to weight loss seen in so many studies in which weight loss plateaus after six to 12 months of caloric restriction, despite self-declared adherence to a hypocaloric dietary prescription. Furthermore, our data sheds some light on lifestyle change interventions that combine diet and physical activities are probably more successful in maintaining weight loss longer term. So it's kind of, kind of their summation of the things that I already described, but here are some of my questions for you and just to, to try and sink into some deeper understanding um, you know, I, I mentioned earlier that these were not advanced training individuals. Um, they weren't doing protocols that, you know, you or I would probably be doing. Um, so I wonder if there is research on a true sweet spot of exercise versus calorie restriction. They, they divided that 25% total energy deficit into 12 and a half percent from exercise to and a half percent for restriction. And this is a question we get all the time as coaches, right? Like, should I do more cardio or, or eat less? You know, what's the way to go? And I'm 
of the mindset that for most people, most of the time, you definitely want to protect food intake. You never want to get, as we can see here, when you get into the low calorie diets or very low calorie diets, you know, that's when you start losing lean body mass. That's where you're going to probably push yourself into behavioral adaptations. Uh, but then you have to answer the question, okay, if you get to that sweet spot, you know, is there a frequency, duration, intensity, you know, kind of secondary sweet spot. And uh, I, I know friends of mine have, uh, you know, 10, 20 years ago, everybody was anti like low intensity cardio. That's worthless. Everybody's got to do high intensity stuff. And now it's this pendulum is back over here where more people are talking about taking walks and, you know, doing this and that. My friend Paul Ravella has a video with a, a million views, you know, how I walked my way to become shredded. And he talks about the fact that I was actually coaching him for the, you know, he got second place at the Yorton cup a couple of years ago and he just likes to walk. So like every morning, um, I believe in an unfed state, he would walk for 60 minutes and just, you know, do some voice to text email to clients and start his day with just a nice slow walk. It wasn't even one of those things that you hear people say, yeah, I walk on the treadmill. I go like four miles an hour on a 12% incline. Yeah, that's that's almost running. You're you're walking up a mountain that way. I'm, I'm talking about really low intensity state where your heart rate's barely over 100. Like a lot of people are doing things like that now, just as a way to burn a couple extra hundred calories a day. But that's completely antithetical to higher intensity short sessions that we know can increase your catecholamine hormone output, adrenaline, norepinephrine, all that, um, and increase testosterone and increase growth hormones. So. I think it's a matter of managing how much of each to do. Uh, then of course, sleep and recovery. We know that, you know, it, let, let's say we took all of these subjects and completely replicated this study, but we had half the subjects only sleep five hours a night. You know, we know from other research reviews we've gone over what a shit show that would be. You know, those people would totally break down in terms of weight loss and so forth. Um, you know, what about diet breaks? My friend, Eric Helms has kind of started this. I give him credit for it four or five years ago, started investigating this a little bit. I think there are a couple of studies now. Um, it's at least showing that over time, diet breaks really don't slow you down. They don't cause slower body fat. They, they probably don't cause an increase, but it's a nice break when you need it. And if there is any physical restorative benefit to that, it, it certainly it certainly shows that you should go for that if you need it. Uh, and then, as I said, some of those, those hormone parallels, uh, do, you know, what's really happening to these hormones underneath. This is something this study didn't look at. Uh, they, they, they made some assumptions in their statistical analysis on, um, you know, this not being a cellular respiration or cellular metabolic phenomena, but movement and behavior oriented but it would be cool to see in a study like this, if other studies doing the hormonal checks, if that matched up. Uh, so anyway, those are just things that I think, once again, as we look at different layers and tentacles of all this research interacting with each other, uh, you know, it all, it all goes together in some way, sometimes imperfectly as puzzle pieces, but you do start to see the things that build the case and affirm one track over another, but I'm going to stop there and uh, let you guys jump in with any questions or comments. I know you guys have all of your own experiences as well with this good stuff, um, but go ahead and feel free to just, just unmute and jump in. Um, Amanda, you're reaching for the, the mic. I see it. Hey, um, I, I, I find this very interesting. I always find your research reviews to be interesting um so personally yeah i do my cardio um i i'm always like kind of like that balance in between like okay well i'm gonna do some walking today how am i feeling first like do i feel like i can get a sprint in you know um i i, I do my my hit twice a week and then usually i do anywhere between 30 to 60 minutes on the other days of just walking at, sometimes at an incline, if I feel like I can just really listening to my body, it's worked for me. Well, 
So first of all, we have to know that we will lose overall non-fat mass, no matter how perfectly we diet, how many things we do well. Um, I just did a body comp analysis and I think it showed that my lean body mass right now is 155 pounds. Yet when I have competed at my best, you know, my, my body weight is only 150. So clearly there's a 10 to 12 pound difference in lean body mass. If I started dieting today for a contest and I'm doing everything right by the book, couldn't do it any better. I'm still going to lose lean body mass, but it's it, do you want to lose a ton or do you want to mitigate that as much as possible? Those are all the things. So when I look at you physically, having seen you go through five or six months of dieting and you, you won two pro cards a week ago, um, you know, I see that density on your back that you were able to maintain. I see glute size and leg, you know, hamstring and quad density that you were able to maintain always comparing that to you in this condition. So let's say you were at 9% body fat right now and next year and the next year and the next year and 10 years from now, we want to see how well you're doing with the whole dieting process. Don't compare yourself from off season to on season. It's always, right. you know, 9% to 9% to 9% to 9%, those kind of truly linear comparisons. Um, but I, I agree exactly what you said. It has to be somewhat by feel. So I, I made the case in my discussion that you, you have to do some things even when you don't feel like it. Like you got to keep moving. Your body's going to say, sit down and adapt. That's your biology. You got to decide, okay, I don't feel like getting up. I want to press the snooze bar. I want that hour of sleep. Some days the sleep is better. If you're chronically not getting sleep, always take the sleep, but you've got to find a way to move. So I know when I was competing Amanda as well, like all those days when I'm fatigued and there's no way I feel like doing a high intensity cardio, I take my pre-workout, I get warmed up, I stretched out, I get that first round in, and then it could be the best workout of my life. I didn't feel like doing it. That was, that, those are my physiological cues, but that's what helps us retain the lean body mass and retain the metabolic capacity. So. I couldn't agree with you more. And I've actually experienced that, you know, where, um, I just, I've been, you know, I, I wake up at 4am to get my, my workouts done and it's my sleep schedule, I think is one of the hardest things that I've had to, um, accommodate in this prep, um, focusing on that because I've noticed that when I don't get enough sleep, my weight is, it's not dropping. And then when I get, when I hit the weekend and I get my eight hours of sleep, I step on the scale and I'm like, holy shit, I lost two pounds. So, I mean, I know that the rest is a very, very, very big part of, um, you know, losing, leaning out and losing the weight. So there's that. And then there's also been days where I, yeah, I'm just like, oh my God, I really don't feel like doing hit, but I haven't done it at all this week. Let me just, let me just jog into it and just get my body going. And then before I know it, I'm like, oh, it wasn't so bad and I'm done. And then I feel great. You know, it's just that initial like push to do it. Um, and I definitely feel, you know, like, I'll, like, I just want to sit all the time. Like I'm, I'm tired. I, you know, not only do I have to do my workouts, but I also have my social life and my family. And, and so it's exhausting. So a lot of times, yeah, I want to sit, but I also know that like, if I stop, then I'm not going to get back up again. <laughs> Well, this, this is why this, this kind of information is so helpful because just with the knowledge and awareness of something like this, the next time that happens, you can think, oh, okay, I don't feel that way. I remember this research review and I need to really compare, like, is this because I'm really, I really need to sleep or should I just get off my ass and move? And like you said, always get to sleep. But once you've got that in the bank, as you should always for your health, then, then take, take the movement, but good, good stuff, Amanda. Any, uh, anybody else, any thoughts, questions? I have a thought if, uh, yes, you can hear me. I can. <clears throat> so this study absolutely, um, well, I would say it, it confirms some bias that I have, but all the times that I've heard other people talk about existing studies on neat levels and how uh, affected they are from outside factors. Um, 
it it just definitely supplants that idea that when you're trying to um you know lose body fat being aware the word that you just use awareness of what your activity is like is such a massive uh step in the right direction um and i think it correlates to nutrition too because people who struggle to lose weight more often than not seem to be unaware of how they're eating and so um you know, things like these easily wearable devices and kind of giving people that message of, hey, just, you know, don't focus too much on feeling like you've got to come out of the gate with all this cardio and all this specific exercise to quote unquote burn calories. But let's just focus on making sure that you're moving. How many steps are you getting? You know, can you add a couple thousand a day without it, uh, it disrupting your routine? Mm. Well said. And, and, and I love, so I, I have never actually, I don't like jewelry at all. I don't wear a wristwatch. I don't have anything on me. Um, but I'm really intrigued by the increased capacity of these things. Uh, there is, there's a researcher at Harvard that says these things now exist and they're literally only about a dollar to produce where you can have these wearables. It doesn't even puncture your skin. It's not like a, a constant monitoring glucometer um, that, that tells you infinitely more than a Fitbit or Apple watch can tell you, including predicting like, like, you know, 10 years before a blood test could even tell you you have cancer. You know, this, this technology exists where you could have these patches that give you that real time data. So imagine the next 10 or so years when these things are more commonplace and you're right, like you can just, it's all synced up to it. You're an app and you're just looking at it at the end of the day. You know, this is what my calorie expenditure was for the day. This is how many steps I took. This is my average heart rate. Like I know a lot of that stuff is available now, but to that level of just awareness, it can really help people make decisions differently. So that's, I think going to be kind of cool coming down the pike here at some point. I just um, wanted to introduce myself. I'm friends with Amanda and she asked, um, told me about you and um, I study nutrition all day, every day. I have clients of my own, but the more I learn, the less I know. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. um, so it's, it's really uh, just good research that you got going on. Um, and I also listen to a lot of podcasts with um, just researchers. So it, it goes hand in hand with what I already um, know and love. So good job for getting that in. Thanks, Chastity. Good to meet you. I'm glad you joined us. Uh, we do these most Fridays, so you're always free to join. And then if you go to the Diet Doc channel on YouTube, we have all the different types of things in different playlists. So you'll see a Friday research, research review playlist with a year and a half worth of these. So absolutely happy you're here and, and glad you're out there helping people. Thank you. Yeah. All right. And uh, Becky, you jumping in as well? Uh, yes. I am, which you know, everybody knows. I've been with the diet doc for seven years. And um, with my age, I'm actually getting healthier as I'm able because of the nutrition and the workouts. I can't believe you have tolerated us for seven years. Yep. A, a, a woman of great patience there. It's it. You need it. You really do. That's why I always I keep telling Kevin, I think I got 33 more years. I always tell him I'm going to live to be 100. Okay. Maybe I'll add more years to it. Well, I hope you can get away from Kevin in those 33 years. You need to, he yeah, usually runs people away sooner than that. Right, right, right. But no, that's, that's what's getting me going. Every blood work, everything's been great. Getting awesome. help. Well, you inspire me, you and your 300 pound deadlifts. And yeah, I did a uh, pound um, seated row last night, came easy. That's, that's why I always train after seeing you, Becky, because you just, you fire me up. So I'm going to, I'm going to go get my workout in. Okay. <laughs> All right, Kevin, you jumping in to say goodbye. Um, two notes, uh, Becky, I only give Andrea, my wife, 30 years of marriage. So you have her beat. <sighs> Um, secondly, uh, on, I think what'd be interesting from the study as far as going forward is what is that tipping point as far as when there is that compensation at six months, how much longer does one have to go to the extent of dieting and or 
in this context of dieting to eventually have the the reins break where it now drops to a point of metabolic expression. Uh, of course, there's multiple variables, et cetera, but um, I'd be interested to see where that average tipping point may be for most individuals just to get that idea because then you can schedule and uh, compensatory behaviors to prevent that from happening. So that would be practically really cool and interesting to find out. That's a good point, especially in comparison to actual body composition. Because if you saw a post I made last week of a client who has been in our program for about 18 months, has lost 140 pounds. And as soon as she started working personally with me in our facility, so I could supervise and drive her actual resistance training, you saw her body composition, her rate of of lean body mass retention that was doing this for the last 12 to 15 months, all of a sudden almost go vertical. Hmm. And so after a hundred and well, actually about a hundred pounds, about 95 pounds, she, which would have been nine to 12 months for her. She actually improved metabolically just because we added what I would call very progressively aggressive training. So there is that length of time avenue, but there's also body comp because eventually let's say she gets to 15% body fat, 10% body fat, then you're going to see those things start to fall off. So yeah, those are, those are really, really good models, but you know, trying to find a, a good handful of subjects who are going to diet for that long a time. That'd be, the- That'd be very tough to do uh, long-term, especially, but you know, I, I just picture as talking points, you know, if you, you know, nine months, if you increase exercise at this point, you can expect 50% of increase in metabolism without changing anything as far as everything being equal to me, I would think that'd be extremely motivating for clients, but not to mention even myself at that point, but who know, I just, no, that's way I think of it. That'd be really cool. Yeah. And, and I actually even prepared that client because as she was excited to get this latest body comp analysis, she was kind of doing the math and she's like, okay, so what do I have to weigh if I want to look like I can get on stage? And so you start doing the math. I'm like, yeah, well, n- now you have to really look at that end game when you're going under your metabolic set point. And, and this great curve we're seeing right now, that's, that's going to go the other direction, no matter how many things you do right. So yeah, it, it eventually you, you, you hit the wall of survival for sure. Cool stuff. Surprised me myself. Mm-hmm. Yep, absolutely. For those of you who are part of this, even on Mondays and Wednesdays, our clients and coaches, we may cancel all of next week because Wednesday and Friday I'm traveling. Monday, I had a, an appointment kind of sprung on me. So I'll remind everybody both in our chats and on social media, uh, but we may just have a, like a full week break at this point. So maybe a little, little spring pre-summer break. Yep. 